The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 84 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering if Michael Eisner, former CEO of Disney, is any relation to Will Eisner, creator of The Spirit? I'm Adam. Now, Michael Kennedy is not with us this episode, but we are going to fill our Michael quota anyway. Returning to the podcast is a man who loves his literature to be full of chills and thrills, so much so that he adapted R.L. Stein's Zombie Town into a feature film, which is now streaming on Hulu, then published his own supernatural adventure comic, Armored, which is getting rave reviews. So we're excited to welcome back to the show, Michael Schwartz. How you doing? Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm well. I'm I'm really happy to be back. It, I think it's been a few years now, hasn't it? At least a year. Yeah. Time flies, oh. but uh, definitely we feel like we need, we need to get Mike back here. But, you know, you like to read creepy comics, especially this is your time of year. In October, you're posted all the horror comics that you have in your collection. As we're approaching the end of the Halloween season, maybe people are going to prepare for next year's events. But is there a series old or new that you could recommend? recommend people grab for just some future frights you know if you're a fan of hellraiser i highly recommend the boom series because it continues off where the movies left off like really well it's like the best sequels i've been talking about a lot online with another instagrammer just how good it is hellraiser has some really bad sequels and in this series does it right but if you're not a hellraiser fan i definitely recommend stray dogs I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Here, no, I have like one of the issues beside me. This series is fantastic. It's like, imagine Silence of the Lambs, but with animals. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Great. That does yeah. sound interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. It- I'll just recommend, you know, I'll say uh, for our patrons this month, we actually are reviewing Army of Darkness on 90s Super Cinema. So I went back and read the adaptation, which I think Boom Studios like re-released at some point, but it was originally through Dark Horse. And it is fantastic. Like this John Bolton painted artwork and it just looks so good. I think it's what Sam Raimi envisioned the movie would look like in his head if he had like 50 million more dollars to work with or something at the time. But it's, but it has all all this like extra you know narration from ash because you know in the movie the stuff's just happening in the book they kind of got to ex- explain more but it's in his voice it's adapted from the original screenplay i loved it i mean it, you know i and of course i love you know novelizations and all the things that give you the little deleted scenes anyway so that's a fun one to get into but if you want to give clive barker some mail and tell him hey we need to get some more of these great hellraiser comics published please <laughs> please continue to sell your license you are going to see what kind of mail the wizard was getting this time around in Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. bag. 
the magic words section of this issue kicks off with two pieces of correspondence from Canada. Hey, fits with our guest perfectly. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it required a response, according to Wizard, from Kevin Smith, who I also believe went to film school in Canada. So that's he kind did? of another connection there. Yeah. I did not know that. But, you know, he was just celebrating the 29th anniversary of Clerks this year as well. So that was a big deal. We're going to get into our first letter here, which is from Matt Hart from Campbellton, Newfoundland. And he is asking here, hey, Jim, I got a few questions about Kevin Smith. What's his favorite type of cheese? What's his next movie? Will it continue the Jersey trilogy? Will Jason Lee be in it? And of the three films he's made, which is his favorite? Until next time, power to the people and screw the man. So, yeah, this guy was definitely a Kevin Smith devotee. I will say also, Wizard very much in the Kevin Smith business. As soon as it was announced that he was doing the Marvel Knights Daredevil and they did their Q&A with him, every subsequent issue going forward has some bit of Kevin Smith news. They shove it wherever they can find it. So just saying, they were very excited about his connection to comics. But this is what Jim McLaughlin has to say. Quote, I have a few answers about Kevin Smith directly from lowercase m the man himself. So first off, Kevin says, quote, craft low-fat American cheese food product in slices. God only knows what's in it, but you can pull a Homer Simpson and eat the whole package if you want to. And at least it's not fattening. <laughs> Uh, number two, he says, Smith says his next cinematic offering, Dogma, is a supernatural comedy road movie featuring Jay, Silent Bob, Angels, Demons, and God. It stands alone, but there are plenty of references to his other movies and a trip from Illinois to New Jersey, so it's kind of a peripheral to the Jersey stuff. Smith also promises lots of comic stuff. Quote, I think the screenplay reads like a comic. It's closely related to Matt Wagner's Mage, and there's also stuff inspired by Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman in there. And Jason Lee is in it. Finally, Smith says, thus far, chasing Amy, as for what was his favorite of his movies. It was a very small and intimate movie, and we had really tanked with the previous film, Mall Rats. We needed to come back and prove ourselves, and we did. So anyway, interesting, yeah, that they could just have a line direct to Kevin Smith and get his thoughts on these things. But uh, hey, that's not all the Kevin Smith we're going to get here. Okay, well, our second letter comes from Scott. I don't even know how to pronounce this. Any Canadian, I feel really bad. Scott, uh, Scott Lafreniere of Ontario. So he asked something that I always, it drove me nuts as a kid. So I'm so happy Scott asked this question. If DC stands for Detective Comics, doesn't that mean that people are saying Detective Comics Comics when they say DC Comics? And <laughs> their response is also from Kevin Smith. Since we already had Kevin on the phone, and since he's such a big comic geek, we figured we'd ask him. Yes, it does, Smith says. But if we simply call it DC instead of DC Comics, people might get it confused with Washington, DC. Then the next time DC starts a new title, some nutball in breakaway Russian Republic hears about a DC launch and decides to strike first and lets his missiles fly. It's all over. It may take an extra word to say DC Comics, but it's worth it. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the response. Only Kevin Smith could give that response. I know. Just like off the top of his head, I'm sure. Just ripping and having a good time. So that's awesome. But yeah, so plenty of Kevin Smith to come in the future, but very, very interesting to get his takes on all of that. So we're ready to check out the. 
So our top story in Wizard News this issue, The More the Merrier, announces that in the wake of being let go from his writing chores on Supreme and Youngblood at Awesome Entertainment due to financial issues, Alan Moore is setting up his own imprint through Jim Lee's Wildstorm Productions. Though his comic universe has yet to be named, the critically acclaimed writer does have several titles already in the works, and they include Tom Strong, which is going to be penciled by Chris Sprouse, Promethea, which though not reported here, would be penciled penciled by J.H. Williams III, Top 10, penciled by Gene Ha, and an anthology series called Tomorrow Stories. Now, in addition to these books that will eventually fall under the America's Best Comics banner, Moore is also publishing a separate series titled The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen through Lee's homage comics imprint. When you look at this list of stuff that Alan Moore was producing at this time, it's amazing because I know so many people online when we even just mention Alan Moore, they're like, oh, Promethea was amazing or whatever, you know, like, They'll, they'll get into it and so i'm like okay and they're like you gotta read top 10 which i did pick up a back issue recently uh there's issue two they didn't have issue one so i'm like okay i'll get the earliest one i could get <laughs> so i'll check that out but even you know we get a movie out of league of extraordinary gentlemen even though alan moore wants something to do with it so i'm curious mike what do you think of this period this alan moore renaissance in the late 90s like were you reading any of these books or any of his stuff that he was putting out I have to admit, it was such a blind spot for me. I think League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was the only one. I loved it, though. Like, I was, like, you know, first in line when the movie came out <laughs> and first out of the theater. Um, but, man... The I, I looking back, I feel like I, Wizard must have advertised them a lot or something because I, I have it seared into my brain. I can, like, pick out what each of the covers look like. I never read any of them. I think I read the first issue of Tom Strong. And that was it. And But looking back, like I was looking back on some of them and I'm like, why did I miss out on this? I, I'm going to go back for sure and read these now. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like they were definitely in the Alan Moore business wizard because eventually yeah. all these characters end up on a cover. They release like a preview comic booklet thing. And, and so like they do all that. And they you had to be of a certain generation where like Alan Moore was huge in the 80s and he's back. And of course, you're going to pick up everything he does. And I think our generation, because we were coming up in the early 90s, late 80s, when, which was kind of a down period for him. It was like, oh, they're telling us this guy's great. I'm sure I'll check out Watchmen eventually. I'll read this other thing, you know? And we we didn't have the same reverence for what he was doing. It wasn't the flashy new thing. You had Joe Mad and, you know, J. Scott Campbell and Cliffhanger happening over here at the same time. So I think that kind of overshadowed what Alan Moore was doing for a period anyway, despite Wizard's best efforts. Absolutely. I think the other thing with me is it was I was influenced by what my father was reading. If the other kids weren't reading it, it was like, oh, what's dad reading? And he didn't. I don't know why he ignored all of these, I think. It, they just weren't on his poll list. Well, speaking of ignored titles, perhaps, uh, let's get into this next story. That's a good segue. <laughs> All right. The next one is Cancelled X Factor to be replaced with spinoff title reports that Marvel Comics is canceling X Factor as of issue 149. And in its place will rise a new series called Mutant X written by Howard Mackey and penciled by Tom Rainey. It's explained that the series will find Alex Summers, a.k.a. Havoc, transported to an alternate reality where the X-Men exist in different forms. Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris explains, Havoc will be married to Madeline Pryor. Storm will be called Bloodstorm because in this world she never recovered from Dracula's bite. It's a jumping on point and opens up a whole new avenue for X-characters and new takes on characters that already exist. So Adam, 
Have you ever read the series or did you even know it existed? When I first saw Mutant X, I was like, I remember that syndicated X-Men adjacent television series that I didn't know how they got away with producing. (laughs) Uh, But I was like, no, it's not that. Okay. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, I was definitely not reading the X books at this time. So it wasn't on my radar from like, just, oh, is this happening now? But there is this kind of interesting thrift store, more of a secondhand store than a thrift store. It's a little different in that way. And they bought somebody's comic book collection like last year. And I've been picking through it. Whoever this collection belonged to was really into this period of like 1997 to 1999. And so I went in there and I was like, wait a minute. I remember Mutant X in that box. And so I ended up going in there and then I started looking through. I'm like, oh, it's every issue of Mutant X. It's all of it. I've got it all in my hands here. I have a gigantic stack. Of okay. Mutant how many X. issues is that? 50? No, well, not even. That's the thing here. Let me see. Okay. I got some annuals in the back. So uh, 32 is 32 issues. 32. Okay. Was there another Mutant X that was like an Age of Apocalypse thing? I, I had to look this up after reading it and was like, I nothing about this is familiar. Yeah, there was X-Man. Oh, X-Man. But, yeah, okay. but that's the thing. So what they were saying in this article, just a little bit more of this news piece, is that people are going to say, oh, it's like Age of Apocalypse. It's another alternate yeah. reality thing. But they're saying, but we think this is a real unique take that's different. And the fact that it lasted for 32 issues, like Age of Apocalypse was a couple months, you know? Yeah. This was like, oh, we're just going for it whole hog. And it is a really interesting setup. I've read like the first five issues. And I mean, it, it kind of repeats itself a lot because it wants to introduce people to the premise. The one thing I'll say though, Something about this alternate reality is they really want everybody to have extra arms because the Fantastic Four shows up in the second issue and the Fantastic Four don't have powers. They have power suits that give them fire powers or invisibility powers or strength transformation powers for the thing. But then Mr. Fantastic doesn't stretch. He just has two extra arms so he can do things. And then in the next issue, Spider-Man from this universe shows up, but they call him Man-Spider because he has the six arms. And I'm just like, you just did the same thing twice in a row? Like, what is this? Just giving people extra arms. I don't know why that was such a big deal in this universe, but I am going to read through the whole thing because I'm never into X-Men main continuity. But if you give me a jumping on point, like they're saying this was supposed to be, I'm going to check it out. You know, I'm going to see where this goes. Havoc's never been my favorite character, but let me figure out if I like him after all. (laughs) I'm amazed that it went on 30 issues. That's incredible. Yeah, that they gave it that long a run. I mean, I just want to know, was it selling that well? Or they're just like, oh, it'll it'll catch on. uh, Like some. Sovereign Seven, where it just kept going yeah. and going. You know, he's like, nobody's reading this. Come on. <laughs> All right, but our next news item here is just keeping this trend going because Spider-Girl spins into new Marvel branch, announces the launch of the new M2 imprint set in an alternate future of the Marvel Universe where a new generation of heroes are fighting the forces of evil. Now, this project is being guided by former Marvel editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco since it was based on the Spider-Girl character he created in What If number 105. Now, planned titles include Spider-Girl with art by Pat Olaf, a next with art by Ron Friends and J2 with art by Ron Lim. So, Mike, did you ever give the M2 universe a chance? I didn't. Not back then. I am now giving it a chance, though. As of this past year, I've started finding them in 50 cent bins. It's kind of exciting to explore a little bit. 
It really is a neat universe. I will say our friends from the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast, they mm. actually interviewed like all these guys, like Rod Freds and Tom DeFalco. Like they, they got them together, uh, like as a round table. They were talking about creating this universe and working together and how much fun they just had doing it. And I also didn't read it at the time, but at this like used bookstore years ago, I started finding all this, the Spider Girl issues. I found a trade. And so there is a store nearby that's a different kind of secondhand antique store that has some comics. And so I've been grabbing the M2 universe books in anticipation for this. Cause yeah, just the whole concept of Spider Girl having made a Parker wearing Ben Riley's costume. That is yeah. such an interesting decision to make. I always thought she had a great look. I just didn't understand her. Isn't isn't it weird like the last story like was an alternate universe and then they're creating an empty universe why was there a necessity for so many alternate universes well i think they were they were like afraid of creating anything new and so they're just like but we have all this continuity that you can tweak and it's interesting because we're trying to bring in our core readers we're trying to bring them back and say it's not heroes reborn anymore it's, it's what you love it's what you love but that was not the end of it right mike yeah. Speaking of alternate takes on the Marvel Universe, Remixing the Classics announces the new Marvel Remix series from editor Ruben Diaz, who explains that it's not so much a what if, but a what else. We take one to four issues to zoom in on classic Marvel story to get a close-up, or maybe pull the camera way back to explain the circumstances around it. For example, Scott Lobdell and Larry Stroman will re-examine the Korvac saga from Avengers Comics, while other creative teams will explore the first appearance of the Punisher or the first meeting between the Fantastic Four and the Inhumans. It's even rumored that Chris Claremont may remix his Dark Phoenix saga, now, can you think of a moment, Adam, where you'd want this to see an alternate look? Is it like, I, I still don't quite get it. It looks like, is it do you, like is it a, an actual remix or is it like, hey, what's happening with these characters at, at this time during this saga? Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's, it's just to kind of say, okay, well, you know, you saw this character for a few panels when they helped out, but here is why they were involved in the story at all. Like it give them a full issue to explain why they were there. For some reason, what immediately came to mind for me, like Maximum Carnage was long enough, but you got to think about like all these heroes that pop in and make cameos. So I just, I, I kind of like the idea of like, you know, Daredevil or Captain America or whatever, having this like Maximum Carnage adventure on the side before they, they hop in or after the fact, like even like the, the spider doppelganger, you know, like the weird, yeah. demon, you know, thing, like just to be like, what was he doing? You know, because they, they had him hanging around, you know, but like, you know, how did he get drawn? in you know to, to be part of their crew so i would think i would have been interested to see a maximum carnage remix for i don't know why but that was the immediate one that came to me how about you I, i'm i'm so against like director's cuts and stuff like <laughs> in movies that i don't know if i can get on board with any of it but i feel like marvel already does stuff like this nowadays like if you read um like the king in black or any of the more recent miniseries <laughs> single comic on the stands as a tie-in and you're like i don't know if i need this it exists though so maybe adam you should be reading a lot more new comics and apparently <laughs> yeah apparently it finally caught up to this idea <laughs> yeah. so yeah it might be worth it now because they could stop 
looking at possible alternate futures. But EarthX Under Construction reports that the 16-page preview booklet of EarthX included with Wizard number 77 will actually become a 14-issue limited series from Alex Ross and Jim Kruger exploring a possible alternate future for the Marvel Universe. But you might be asking, at this point, why hasn't it been published yet? Well, as Alex Ross explains, quote, Marvel's been very consistent that they want it. It's just the contracts are taking so damn long. Now, for the unfamiliar, EarthX deals with a world where all humans have been mutated into superpowered beings. So the question of the series, as stated by Ross, is, quote, when everyone is super, is anyone a superhero? So the two-page report in this issue actually offers some additional sketches of his new takes, or should I say older takes, uh, on classic heroes, you know, Captain America, The Thing, Machine Man. So I'm just curious for you, Mike, as you look through these uh, these ideas that he had, are any of them jumping out to you? You're like, oh, that's kind of cool. First, I have to say, I actually read Earth X probably like five months ago for the first time because I found them all on a 50 cent bin and I was like I, I, I've been dying to read this for years I remember my dad collecting them but I don't think I ever read his issues so in these designs that they show Black Knight is so cool looking like he's got like that armor the full body armor like he looks just he looks way cooler than the regular Black Knight. But the, my favorite, I think, like as a kid, was seeing Daredevil's Ghost Rider mashup. Yeah. He's not in this issue. They don't show him, though. Mm-hmm. So I read this years and years ago. I, I bought the trades at Borders Books, which no longer wow. exists. That tells you yeah. how long ago it was. But I, I bought all the trades. I loved it. But the Machine Man has always been my favorite character. And he is kind of like the main character of the book. Yeah. And you can tell that Alex Ross really has a lot of affinity for him. And so I I really, really enjoy the design because he's just like a translucent body and then all the machine is like inside him and you can see it. It's a really cool design. It's it's a lot less goofy than his purple and pink look that Jack Kirby put together originally. It reminded me of like a Bionic 6 character, the, yeah. the machine man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So this is something I can't wait to get into more detail when it's finally released and becomes, you know, a major feature of the magazine. But I just think it's also interesting to note, just to be very clear, that Earth X happened because Alex Ross did a feature in Wizard. They said, hey, what do you think everybody would look like in the Marvel Universe of the future? Like Kingdom Come, but do it for Marvel. And then he did it. And then he's like, this has turned out great. I'm loving it. And then pitches it to, to Marvel. And they say, okay, let's do it. So it's all because of Wizard, just another place where they had a big influence in actually getting certain comics published. But man, he takes Marvel in such a drastic different direction than DC. DC feels very like consistent. Yeah, no, this and this one just keeps going because you have Earth yeah. X and you have Paradise X and you have oh like, it, it just keeps going. Like it, it was not a one and done deal. That was not a mini series. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Finally, Wizard pulled their America Online users, America Online, to ask which X-Man should get a comic of his own. The results were scattered as Iceman ultimately won with 23% of the vote, followed by Cyclops and Phoenix with 15%, which tied with the none of the above category, meaning these fans didn't want a new X-Men book. Rogue got 14%, Angel and Beast tied with 9%, and Storm earned 8%, with 1% going to the other category. Wizard can't believe that Iceman is the number one X-Men character, but as one voting fan explained, he's the young, relatable one. So 
Adam, can you think of an X-Men character that would work better solo than with the team? Oh, man. I mean, you know, a lot of them have had a mini series right here or there that they give them their shot. Iceman uh, did, too. I found I found like a mini, a four issue mini of Iceman. Oh, they did so many in the 80s, yeah. especially. Yeah, there were yeah. a ton of those. But I was thinking, you know, she's a character who I feel like has managed to stand on her own in a lot of ways because she joined S.H.I.E.L.D. Like she's done a lot of things, but I think Kitty Pride, if it was, if, you know, whether she goes by Shadow Cat or whatever, but she's just like got her own series feels like a character especially today that would really resonate in a big way and she could do a lot of interesting things and there's always you know just the idea of being intangible and those like phasing like it feels like you could pull out of that various meanings and metaphors in addition to just the action of the story so i and i they must have attempted an ongoing with her at some point but it feels like she would be uh, a character that might be unexpected and then everybody's like oh this is like the best book ever if you get the right writer behind it you know well she ran her own team in the latest like Krakoan era of mm-hmm. X-Men so she was running a team but yeah I don't think she she never really had her own book I guess she had the Wolverine uh, yeah like she's had one. the mini yeah. series but she was teamed with Wolverine yeah so it's Wolverine, just like, and she's been leader of a team but not her that's a good one I I, I support this <laughs> what about for you though <laughs> as a kid Gambit was my guy so I always collected that and then more recently I, I pick up anything Gambit so I, I have to go with just Gambit who already gets his own books all the time. Yeah. It's not boring. I'm so boring. That's <laughs> But he's so mysterious, you know, even yeah. though they answer the mysteries every once in a while. But I am curious too, though, because you laughed when you said America Online. In Canada, <laughs> did you have to use America Online or did they have Canada Online? Like, Okay, so no, no, no. We, this is early, early, early on when it come in Wizard that we would use it. We would use it. We'd get oh. like the 500 hours free or whatever it was. Yeah. Those discs, like we actually used them, but eventually there was like local or... Uh, provincial-wide suppliers of internet, so we didn't have to use it. But early on, I'd go over to my friend's house, give him a disc, (laughs) and it was all thanks to Wizard. Like, it's amazing. That is. They connected you to the net. Mission accomplished. All right. Well, now we are going to get into really like the details of this issue. There's a lot of great features that they've included with our table of contents. Still no theme song. Hey, we're going to put it out to you geeks. If you're musical and you can think of a table of contents theme song, I've just never been able to find something I feel fits. And so I've never put it in there. So you let us know, send it on over to us and uh, we'll be happy to give it a play and see if people like it. But Wizard 84 with an August 1998 cover date featured two covers. The first was a Mike Waringo Spider-Man featuring a bunch of different Spider-Man masks behind him which I love. If you really pay attention, you have Spider-Boy from Amalgam, you have Spider-Ham, you even have the paper baghead Spider-Man from the time Spidey had to leave the alien symbiote costume with the Fantastic Four, and then he improvised a costume by putting a bag on his head and having an old 60s Fantastic Four costume with a kick-me sign on the back that Johnny Storm put on there. Always cracked me up. But the second cover was just going to sell itself in the comic book stores, and that was a Michael Turner Fathom cover. 
The issue also came packed with a Marvel Knights sketchbook and a mail-away offer for a Witchblade 500 issue instead of the usual half issue. And so it basically told the story of Sarah Pizzini in the future, and she still has the Witchblade and what that has done to her life and all that. So it's kind of a, an interesting, we're just going to jump ahead instead of instead of doing a half issue just to tie into whatever's in continuity at the moment. So, Mike, I know you have the Fathom cover. Did mm-hmm. you Do you recall, because I know you and your dad you know we're collecting comics simultaneously at this time did you ever like each get a copy did he ever buy both covers or was it always just did you have a subscription how did that work i'm trying to remember i remember we had so we had a pull list at the local comic shop and actually it wasn't that local it was like a city away and we would usually get just a random cover i don't think i even realized there were all like i don't it didn't register that i could get a different cover until much later and i think I think it was chosen for us or sometimes both covers would be I remember sometimes we'd come home with two copies and be like my dad would be like why thing he sold me two copies damn it like <laughs> he would always get so angry because he's like they knew how to get me no wonder this cost so much so he would think oh we haven't been here in a while we're two months back that's how we always knew if it had been a while oh we have three issues of wizard to get through and sometimes they would throw in both covers but you could have chosen for us. We never got to choose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the cover that you did hold on to, take yeah. us into our first story here. Our first cover story is Waterworld. It's a preview of Michael Turner's new creator-owned underwater adventure series, Fathom, written by the fan-favorite artist himself. On the origins of the book, Turner explains, about two years ago, I tried scuba diving for the first time and was totally blown away by this incredible and mysterious underwater world. I realized that I'd never seen an underwater comic done the way I wanted it done. I guarantee there won't be anyone riding the backs of giant turtles or people with fins on their ears. Black and white pencil sketches of various characters fill the first four pages of the article, but the final page is a breakdown of the cover to issue one that points out the underwater creatures as sea urchins, scorpion fish, and moray eels worked into the designs. So Adam, was Fathom your favorite underwater comic or was there another one you preferred? (laughs) Definitely not Fathom, man. I remember seeing this and just being like, so you're just going to draw pictures of hot girls for like, you know, 20 pages. Like, I'm, I don't want to read this. Like, there's nothing here for me. And now that I have read it, there's still nothing here for me. I mean, it's beautifully detailed artwork, but that's all it is. Like, the story just doesn't catch me at all. It's too mysterious. It doesn't ever, like, coalesce in a great way, I feel. But I will say that uh, underwater comics weren't, like, huge to me, except for, like, I remember Atlantis Attacks being something when I was first getting into comics that my buddy was collecting all those annuals and you know and I was yeah. like oh Atlantis Attacks that's kind of cool and then when John Byrne did Namor I've been trying to get like a full run of his Namor I'm missing like one or two issues now just because I love John Byrne so to look at and see his take but most of that takes place above you know the water because he figures out oh you know this is how you stabilize Namor now he's going to run this corporation and all this stuff so <laughs> that doesn't really count as an underwater comic so I don't know Peter David's Little Mermaid Huh? <laughs> <laughs> did Peter David do the Little Mermaid series? He did. Oh he wrote the, the Disney licensed Little Mermaid comic <laughs> I, for Marvel. I just read my daughter that like last year, the first issue. So that I need to go back now. This yeah. is nice. 
What about for you? Okay, so Fathom, I found interesting. I never read it, but I always was like fascinated. It was always in Wizard, I feel like, or, or Witchblade. So it was like interchangeable to me. They looked the same. I was confused. I was like, why did they wear the same outfit? But my whole attitude towards it was, and I don't know why my attitude was this, but I kept thinking, I'll wait for James Cameron to make it a movie. Did they ever do a Fathom? What if James Cameron had made it? Because in my head, I imagined he was the, the logical choice for it. Yeah, I mean, he did the abyss, and yeah, I think that's like, what it must have been. Yes, yeah. huh. but for me, Aquaman, hands down. I, you know, I was big into Aquaman during his chopped off hand years. So to me, that was my underwater. And were you a water kid in real life? Like, were you on a swim team? Did you play water polo or nothing like that? Okay. No, no. I would go to Florida and go swimming. That was it. (laughs) You weren't trying to live the life. Okay. All right. Well, our second cover story here, the wizard Q&A with Howard Mackey is an attempt to understand the past, present, and future of the writer who is being tasked with becoming the voice of Spider-Man during the relaunch and revitalization of the character at the end of 1998. So, interviewer Matt Senreich mentions the fact that Mackie is apprehensive about talking to Wizard Magazine since they had relentlessly bashed his past work on the character. Says Mackie, quote, you guys never wanted to talk to me when I was doing the clone saga thing. It's nothing personal, but you can't help a feeling this way when all you see about yourself is negative press for a story that's been over for years now. I realized the clone saga sucked, but it was a story and a story that is now well over. Can't we move on? I love Spider-Man. Probably more than you guys at Wizard who write all the articles saying that I don't. So I love that transparency that he's just calling him out. He's like, uh, oh, now you want to talk to me? I see. Okay. I love it. But it may be that love for the character which prompted the direction of the relaunch, as Mackie explains, quote, We're talking about giving a happy ending to Peter Parker. His clone won't return. Everybody won't die. We're setting things up so Peter Parker will have a life again. Because it hasn't really been done before. And because we get a lot of grief every time we do something negative. Now, on that topic, Wizard asks, What went wrong with the Spider-Man titles that prompted this slimming of the line to just two monthly books written by Mackie in an attempt to improve sales and he responds quote I don't want to say the clone saga, but I think it does come back to that for a number of reasons. It was conceived as a six-month storyline. Despite what everybody thinks, sales on the initial run of the clone saga were up. With Spider-Man sales staying up and steady, the editorial department was told to stretch it. Us writers were not big fans of that. So then it was months and months of deliberations, four-hour telephone conferences. All of us were trying to figure out ways to end it and make the editors happy. We no longer knew where we were heading. Somewhere along the way, the clone saga has become the catchphrase for all that is wrong in everything, not only comics. World War III will be caused by the clone saga. It wasn't that there were bad decisions, it's the problem was there were no decisions being made. And were there times where I was ready to leave? Absolutely. But I stuck it out because I enjoy writing Spider-Man, and I know I can do it well when I can do my stories. I was waiting for the editors to let me have my chance, as opposed to just going by what they said. Writing Spider-Man is the biggest kick of my day. I mean, I feel a lot. <laughs> I, I feel so bad for him. But, and I, I wish I could meet him because to me, that was actually my favorite time. Well, no, my favorite was when my dad read me the first hundred issues of Amazing Spider-Man. But this for me, I read it was right after Maximum Carnage, right? Basically, yeah. Uh, so I fun. just consistently read straight through and I was on board for every issue, every single tie in. It was like 
this was a big deal, Clone Saga, and he just, he must have been destroyed at this time. I mean, especially because, like, I will say, I was there too. Like, I liked Ben Riley. I, again, huh. wanted to have a jumping on point, like with Mutant X. Here, here was an entry point for me where, I, you know, I would pick up random issues of Spider-Man here and there before that, but now it's like, oh, this is a new beginning and I can follow this guy's story. Now, it did get convoluted and I did stop reading it because there were too many pieces to the, the puzzle there. But at the <laughs> same time, like, it was exciting and new. What's funny, Adam, is that I actually did stop after the Clone Saga. I just went straight to like the image titles. I was it was just the darkness and spot. So yeah, it kind of did kill Spider Man a bit. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately what it was. Is they they got a little bit greedy. It sounds yeah. like, and then they just didn't know what to do. But we could keep selling it if it says Clone Saga. If you have all these you know twists and turns that were promising. As you know, I had like all my comics stolen, right? Like all my childhood comics stolen. So the Clone Saga is one that I'm constantly trying to collect from the back issue bins. Like I just want it back. I mean, it, it, it was a fun time, I think, and it's just Wizard certainly contributed to the perception that it was the worst thing that ever happened. Because like he said there, even like two years later, they, in the magazine, they keep bringing it up. And it's only now that they switched over to Superman Red and Blue and they were picking on Superman Red and Blue and saying how terrible that was. So they always had to have something to gripe about with a classic character's new direction, you know? But anyway, take us into uh, talking about a classic character, maybe a forgotten character. Team Spirit is an interview with the various comic book creators who will be contributing to a new anthology series starring Will Eisner's Paul Pirro the Spirit, which originally ran in newspapers from 1940 to 1952. Wizard asks, why are today's top creators flocking to the Spirit, the new adventures, starring a 58-year-old superhero you've never heard of? Here are a few quotes from these titans of the industry that answer that question. Kurt Busiek says, You can say Jack Kirby was the most creative creator we've ever had in comics, but Eisner is the master of technique. With Eisner, it's all skill. Alan Moore says of his plans with collaborator Dave Gibbons, We really wanted to do something that came from Eisner's inspiration. We also wanted to draw from different periods of the spirit. Neil Gaiman is even contributing to the series, though he recalls that at first he said, Absolutely not. The spirit stories are as good as they get. I can't do better than Will did, and I won't write any new adventures. Regarding his reverence for the original stories, Gaiman explains, Everybody gives up comics occasionally. During that period between the ages of 17 and 22, when I gave up comics, I didn't give up Eisner. I didn't give up the spirit. I would still hunt down the reprints because they're just as good as comics ever get. So Adam, did you ever read the spirit? Uh, definitely only knew about the spirit because wizard did like their top 100 comics or whatever special. And the spirit is on the cover of that. I'm like, what, who is this character? This guy in a suit and a mask. I just didn't feel like I had access to the spirit. It wasn't like the reprints were all over the place. This one definitely wasn't heavily promoted in my local comic book store. And I don't think it had the flash of what I would be, you know, looking for at the time, but I did go and read this series because I love like the anthology series where they do just this. They're like, here's a classic character, like the Rocketeer. They did the Rocketeer Adventures like a decade ago or more. And uh, and that was fun where you got all these creators just doing their little short Rocketeer story. Like it's fantastic. And you can't go wrong with this roster of creators, like literally like the best writers in comics who have done like the most seminal work and they're going to write a spirit story. And so if you guys can track them down, I, I think they're totally worth it. They're just fun. And you really like get a, an idea 
idea of who he is now. I will say, I know that there was a movie of the spirit that Frank Miller himself directed. I saw that in theaters because of the high off of Sin City. And I was just like, oh, it's like Sin City. I'm like, oh, this is not good. What is Samuel L. Jackson doing here? But then there was also a TV movie of the spirit in the 80s that starred Sam Jones aka Flash Gordon from the 1980 film. Yeah, if you've never seen that, it's it's weird. <laughs> but maybe closer to the comics than what Frank Miller was doing, I feel like. But what about you? Have you ever tracked down the spirit? I always saw him listed in Wizard. As a kid, he looked boring to me. Yeah. Kind of wet and a little mask and i don't yeah this didn't register well there was no access to it i guess but reading about it now i was like oh this sounds really cool i think you it, maybe maturity helps with the the spirit mm -hmm. to appreciate it i do want to point out one thing though alan moore look at it he he contributed to this and the amount he complains about like people you know readapting watchmen and i was just like oh, i get where more comes from when he, you know when he gets bothered by people like continuing on the story of watchmen or whatever do you remember a few years ago they like the top creators took on different characters from the watchmen series right. and had their own series and i'm just like he his mind would have been blown to see him be a part of this i'm like I don't know if you can actually. <laughs> Feels a little hypocritical. Yeah, I mean, I think in his mind, it's like, well, this is a tribute to Will Eisner, whereas he's like, DC's just trying to cash in on what I, can. you know, they don't want to <laughs> pay. They me. They're a business. They're yeah. a business. They have to cash in. But I think people love, you know, the Watchmen and what he created, and they're, it's it's also a tribute. But yeah, DC's a business. I don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but the other thing about Will Eisner is. We always heard about the Eisner Awards, like yeah. the top award in comics to the top creators. And I think like only the people that were deep into comics and creating comics looked at him and said, oh, I learned so much from looking at his pages. Like they even have a, a sidebar at the end of this article where they talk to people like Todd McFarlane, you know, and he says, quote, a lot of what enamored me with his stuff was mood. Even though there was a lighthearted feel to the spirit, I always loved the feeling that it was always two o'clock in the morning or something. And it had a sort of ambiance to it. He was also very impressive in terms of page layouts. Will proved you could incorporate design into storytelling, you know, so like they all have these like great things to say about him. But like, if you look at Will Eisner pages, you can tell how much the image creators were influenced by him because so much bleeds over between panels and pages. And it's like, it's really interesting to see his style being so wild and creative back then. Well, I think I'm, I'm saying it here now. I, I'm going to read the spirit. I'm, I'm going to go get, get some books because I, I think it's an, a necessity that, you know, I, Hey, I'm a comic creator now. And I'm like, I, sh I really should educate myself here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You gotta know where it all came from. Yeah. But speaking of this moment in time, 1998, our next article, Power Players, is Wizard's list of the 25 most powerful people in comics. And this is really interesting because, you know, you think about like, well, what, what levels of power? I mean, they have big name creators like Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Joe Matarera, Grant Morrison, all these names that we hear in Wizard all the time. But there are also some folks who everyday fanboys might not realize were influencing a lot of the comic book industry decisions so obviously we're not going to go over all 25 we'll post it on social media you guys can look at the list and give us your thoughts but uh we're each going to choose from three different categories 
who we think fits into this for us, okay? So the first category I kind of set aside here was of the moment, which means they were real big for the time, but their relevance has now faded. Changing the world, meaning who was the most influential in the long run. And then finally, secret weapon. Somebody whose name we saw, we're like, who is that? I didn't know he was such a big deal. And you're like, oh, okay, now I see. So did you have one, Mike, for the of the moment, like the biggest star that stands out to you? You're like, oh, I remember him getting the hype. Okay, so for me, it was Busiek. Like, Kurt Busiek was, like, huge to me. Like, he was, he was, I think, my favorite writer at the time. And now I don't hear anything about him. Like, I don't hear... He's very active on social media. So he'll like like, talk about his old stuff. He's always excited about reprints of his old stuff. Mark Wade is a guy who has continued. Like, I feel like they were contemporaries. It was always Wade or Busick. Like, they were the big names of writers that were consistently appreciated. And then Mark Wade is just continues. Like, everybody's like, oh, his his latest run on JLA or whatever he's been doing, you know, is so good. It's so good. Superman, you know, whatever he's doing. And then, yeah, Kurt Busick, like, not a lot of new stuff. Yeah, and that, that surprised me me my pick was also kind of an old veteran who was having a renaissance at this time and that was chris claremont okay because chris claremont he was so revered and then jim lee comes on x-men and he's out and then he's writing his novels he's doing sovereign seven he's doing you know all these projects that nobody really cares about and then he comes back into the fold of marvel and suddenly they're saying he's a big deal number 17 the position of power he's the vice president and editorial director of marvel comics at this time and they say why is he number 17 chris claremont sits on a lofty perch he's the right hand man of marvel editor-in-chief bob harris claremont reviews every new proposal that comes through marvel and if a writer can't be found where a need exists claremont may jump on the project himself he's currently filling in on wolverine took over from scott lovedell on fantastic four where he'll be running the affairs of marvel's first team for at least the next two years as marvel's number two editorial authority claremont uses the language he played an integral role in creating In his 17-year run on Uncanny X-Men, Claremont not only moved Marvel's mutants from a property on the brink of cancellation to the juggernaut of the industry, but he also helped create the deep personal relationships between teammates still seated the entire X-Men line in titles like DC's top-selling JLA. Chris Claremont, very influential because of that X-Men run. Pretty much only because of that X-Men run. He had Excalibur... And tried to make that a thing. And then, you know, everything since, even when he would return to the X-Men, mixed results. And I, I, ju- I just feel like he's been writing off, you know, a good couple year collaboration with John Byrne, where they were a power team. And he thinks he's got it, and it doesn't always have it. And I, I know Michael was just at New York Comic Con and said he was the biggest thing there. Like, his line was like a, out the building. Like, it, he was such a big deal. But I just, I don't know that he really is relevant now except for his legacy but i think that legacy it it just goes beyond like i don't know you know growing up in the x-men animated series i feel like his stories just permeate throughout that that i don't know i don't know if i agree with your well i mean (laughs) is is he your pick for changing the world the person who did know the longest influence who did you know to me that's got to be alan moore i think i just feel like he he like legitimized superheroes and like we, every superhero movie was like, we have to make it serious, like an Alan Moore comic. So that's my pick. What about yours? I mean, I, I would agree. I think Alan Moore is like, yeah, somebody who changed the perception of comics. However, I think the person 
who helped usher comics into the mainstream in such a way that it was cool is Kevin mm. Smith. Because we've, yeah, we've talked about him already, but you think about all that he did, like not just working actual comic book creators into his movies, working the comic book business into his movies and chasing Amy and all of that. But I mean, he's, he's always revisiting that side of things, but also just like his whole like podcast empire. I mean, he's just fat man on Batman. I mean, he's talking about comics all the time. He is somebody who reinvents Daredevil so that he can get a movie, you know, like all these things, <laughs> everything he does brings comics out of like you know the 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 back issue bin if you will and onto the shelf it makes comics a wall book for you know pop culture at large everybody pays attention to kevin smith's opinions and he's genuinely passionate about comics and owns a comic book store he's got a comic book men tv series everything says comics and kevin smith and i think for our generation that is carrying the hobby forward i think he's the guy yeah you know, I have to say when I was like really out of like superhero comics, it was all like in addition to reading The Flash, but it was his Green Arrow run that just I jumped right in and was just like, I love the way he wrote comics. It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'm about to explore that series and uh, you know Daredevil a little bit more because I've always heard about it, but I never read it. So oh, I was so see- good. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. And then the the artwork was fantastic too, but I think it was Phil Hester, maybe. I forget. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, who's who's your secret weapon? Who's the person you discovered was a big deal in comics and maybe didn't realize how big a deal? Okay, I don't I didn't know either of these people, but I felt like these seem like a big deal. Steve Geppi of uh of Diamond. Uh-huh. Like, you know, that's still a big deal today, although people are like leaving Diamond now, I think, right? And then uh Joseph Calamari, who who was steering the ship during the troubled waters of Marvel's uh, bankruptcy, right? I didn't, I had no idea they were those, who those guys were until reading this again. Yeah, they're just, they're handling the business of comics. You know, it's like, how do you get your comics? Steve Geppi is the guy getting it done, right? And then the one for me was Steve Milo, because he is a name I knew nothing about. And then you read it that he was number 10 in his position of power. They say president of another universe, comic stores, mail order and online subscriptions combined. His stores sell more comics than any other retail store chain. And so I remember like the, another universe catalogs starting to get inserted in the poly bags with wizard each issue. And you're like, Oh, okay. But then it also explains this. He's got the biggest checkbook in the business and can make or break a title. Steve Milo's and other universe comic stores dot the Washington, D.C. area, but more importantly, Milo's the mail order king. From 1994 to 1996, many comic stores closed shop as business got tough. Fans without local stores turned to Milo, who sent out huge catalog mailings, gaining thousands of new customers. Ever on the cutting edge, Milo was first on the online bandwagon, and anotheruniverse.com is now ringing up big bucks. Industry estimates place Milo's orders at approximately 10% of the entire comic business. A strong order from Milo can keep a title afloat. A weak order could spell its cancellation. This ordered power also gets him exclusive covers and sometimes even exclusive stories. Yet another reason many collectors shop another universe. I think I would have ignored it as a Canadian, though. I think that's the difference is if it came in wizard garbage immediately because I'm in Canada. So I don't know if they would have shipped or, but that's unreal. 10%. 
I mean, I, just to think like, that's like where the business was going anyway, you know, like, so he yeah. was there, like literally on the ground floor, taking mail order online and getting it done. Like I was looking, you know, into his career after this, Marvel eventually just hires him to handle all their like marketing and brand management kind of stuff and, and sales. So like he, he really becomes a big player going forward. So, and I think he might get involved with Wizard down the line too. I'm kind of curious to oh. see if that becomes the case, but either okay. way, yeah. So that that was pretty fascinating to see just how powerful these, these people were, whether or not they were fans or they just saw an opportunity, you know? <laughs> Uh, but speaking of the fans, where do they congregate, Mike? Oh, boy. In the next article, we have Comic Confidential. It's uh, the Wizard Staff's helpful guide to making the most of your comic book convention experience. Now that they were actually running their own now with Wizard World Chicago. Of course, there's plenty of attitude, but also some clever ideas. So we're each going to give a highlight, the three tips that we think are most useful based on our own convention experiences. All right. You want to go first? Sure. Now, I will say I've only been to two conventions in my life. I went to San Diego Comic-Con in 1997 and I went to the Phoenix Comic-Con in like when was it? Maybe 2009, 2010, something like that. So it's been, it, I, I don't have a lot, but I've been to RetroCon a lot. That's my convention that I go to. That's my world. And so a lot of these things just apply across the board. But the first bit of advice here is don't be an idiot. Sure, that Chromium Darkness number 11 for 20 bucks looks like a steal, but relax. Walk around a while. Don't just settle for the first thing you see. Now, you might not find a comic cheaper, but how crappy would you feel if you shelled out 20 clams for something and someone else had it for 10 bucks just two tables down also bringing a price guide is a good way to keep tabs on whether you're getting ripped off or not and when you find a table you like write down the booth number so you can easily find it later and i was just like okay first of all they're plugging their own price guide basically bring wizard with you <laughs> But I found this to be the case, like when I would first go to conventions, it's just like, as soon as you walk in, you're like, oh, you spend all your money, like on the first row. And you're like, oh, like I, there was so much more to see. You just don't know when, when you're trying to conceive of, of what you're going to do there. So if you have a little bit of patience and you can say, okay, this is here. Let me just look around and then I'll swing back as you write down the number of the booth. Which row is that on? Okay. Okay. I'll be back. Like that's just, that's just good thinking. Adam, you needed a father like I had to teach you what to do. He would <laughs> always be like, whoa, settle down. Let's look around. You do the rows and then. <laughs> but were you big convention goers then? We went to the, the biggest was like the Toronto Comic Con. It became Fan Expo. It's I think there's Fan Expos everywhere, but it's like Fan Expo Toronto. And mm -hmm. so we consistently went every year. And then there would be local cons that we go to. So I went to. Ever, that was like what I did with my dad at the end of summer. You knew that was the school's about to start when we were going to the convention. So, yeah. So what piece of advice that resonated with you after having that many experiences going there? This piece of advice I give to people, I was giving to people a lot and, and I still do. It's a get on your knees, check out the bargain bins. Those are the quarter boxes most dealers have piled underneath their tables. Sure, you'll find more than enough copies of ALF, Boof, the Bruce Crew, and Dakota North, but you also might uncover some old key Avengers, Daredevil, or even Uncanny X-Men issues. You just never know what you'll find. I live by this, especially once my comics were stolen and I knew I had a finite amount of money to like try to collect things back. I, I 
exclusively only went through 50 cent bins. There's only one place with quarter bins in Toronto. I was just like, where are the 50 cent bins? And that's how I accumulated like all the keys I have were from 50 cent bins. But you have to be willing to go like every day, every other day, go through every bin and and ignore the wall book. Yeah, that, that's always been my philosophy. I have never been a wall book guy. Even like in the early days, like I would buy a few new comics off the shelf when they were, you know, first coming out. But I was always in the back issue bins and looking for the cheapest box I could find. And I still do that. Like when I travel, I go yeah. in and like, I'll look at it on the wall. And I was like, I don't, I don't need anything special. I need <laughs> what's special in the hunt down here. And even like at RetroCon, when I went there one time, I found all the Mike Allred Madman action figures under a table, just in a box, just in the bottom of the box underneath everything else, you know, all bagged with their accessories. I was just like, what? I got them for like five bucks each. I'm like, this is the best. Yeah. You That's just- like, yeah. I, I found a bunch of Swamp Thing toys under those under the table toys, like bins. Yeah. yeah like for two, I think I got like a whole, a four Swamp Thing figures, those Kenner figures. Yeah. Still in package for like $2 each. My other bit of business here that I felt was really important was touch it. <laughs> so what this says is open up comics before you buy them, especially the expensive ones. That amazing Spider-Man number 46 may look gorgeous on the outside, but page 16 could have a coupon or one of those cool Mighty Marvel stamps cut out of it. Always ask a dealer first, though, before ripping open a bag and be super careful when you take out and handle the book. You rip it, you buy it. Beware of that evil thing called tape. Heck, you might even want to ask the dealer to take the comic out of the bag for you. If you don't see the exact comic or condition, you're looking for just ask most dealers have tons of extra books hidden away that they just don't have room to show this is a big deal for me and it's a lesson i've learned the hard way several times just buying on ebay i would say not at cons but like i i found these books like i got a gen 13 number one and it had fairchild cut out like in like four or five pages in and i was like man come on you know like so it's just like it happens more than you think that people are like mangling the comics you gotta look at them if you're buying it for collector's sake in my case i was just like i can't even read this now because you cut out a you know a big hole in there but i'm just curious have you ever come across any books that were damaged and you didn't know until later well i'm such a a cheap collector that i i only peruse the cheap bins there is a three dollar bin a comic shop near my mom's house and in the three dollar bin they'll have like kind of big books but they always will say like on the corner or whatever it's usually the value stamp is cut out that doesn't bother me it would bother me if a character was cut out though i have not found that ever before it's always the marvel stamp is cut or a back page i've had missing i guess but i don't buy from ebay so i don't mind i've avoided this problem yeah (laughs) all right what's your next bit here okay don't leave on full weekend shows like comic-con international at San Diego or Wizard World, don't assume Sundays are weekdays. Sure, there's less merchandise and the hottest books are probably long gone, but there's a lot fewer people around and you'll find some amazing bargains. This, okay, is 100% from my dad. Sometimes he, if we could only do one day, he'd be like, it's Sunday. We're doing Sunday because he was always after the Silver Age books. So he was like, I know I can get the guys down. That was his goal. I remember on the last day of uh, a Comic-Con, probably five years ago, I got uh, a Ninja Turtles figure, like an 80s one. I think I'd seen it there for $80. And then they were selling it on the last day for $30. And I was like, it was Metalhead. Oh, cool. Character. And so I I was like, I have to grab this 30 bucks. I think that's a good one to live by. Yeah, they've they've had a whole weekend and they're disappointed with their sales. And then you're like, ah, 
you want to make 30 bucks? You know, it's like, okay, yeah, good deal, good deal. Yeah, that's definitely a smart plan. Speaking of plans, though, my last bit of business, what the hell are you doing? Is they say, make a plan, Stan. Before you get to the show, decide exactly why you're going. Is it for back issues, autographs, toys, the food? Yeah, right. Then make a list of exactly what you're looking for. Just be sure to cross off things as you buy them so you don't accidentally get the same comic twice. It happens. When you first get to a show, grab a program and highlight all the events you want to go to, including autograph times. Some creators are only there for a few hours, and if you miss them, it's sorry, Charlie. This one is big for me because especially recently, again, at RetroCon, I posted about this on our social media. There was a box under a table filled with wizard magazines. It was just so many and they were like kind of from this period forward. And so we have most of them in the archives, but there's a few like covers that maybe we don't have that version of it. And I'm looking through and I'm trying to rack my brain. What don't we have? What don't we have? But there's like over 200 issues and I'm just like, ah, ah. And I bought none of them because I didn't want to have extras. You know, I'm just like, I, what am I going to do? You know, and same, I was on a trip. I went to a comic book store. I was disappointed. I didn't find anything in the back issue bins or the the quarter bins or anything I wanted. And then they had Sensational She-Hulk number one as a wall book. And I was just like, ah, man, I've been trying to complete my Sensational run. I I do a lot of trying to complete my burn books, you know? And so I was doing that and I was like, I have the trade with the first four or five issues, but I don't think I have that first issue. And it was a fairly good price. So I bought it and then I got home and I was like, I already had Sensational number one. What? Now I have two copies? And I was just like, why didn't I write this down? Why didn't I have some idea? You know, so that's a huge thing, like managing your time and then knowing what you need. So everybody does it digitally now and I need to do that. I just haven't taken the time to create a spreadsheet, you know, but I'm just like, ah, it's bit me so many times. So (laughs) you got to do it. I live by my spreadsheet. All right. What's your final bit of wisdom from Wizard that you agree with here? Where do I keep my crap? Like the Boy Scouts, always come prepared. Bring a backpack so you can store all the comics and toys you're going to buy. If you're buying by the box load, one of those hand carts will do wonders for your back. And if you're planning on buying posters or original art, bring along poster tubes and two heavy pieces of cardboard. A large FedEx box does the trick. To keep them safe. I've never had to carry around like a suitcase type thing. That's crazy. I've seen those guys roll up with like a short box, pull out like a stack of books for, you know, an artist to sign. And I'm just like, well, I guess I'm not getting an autograph because this guy's got 200 comics to go through. How many of the pros put up a limit? They're like, no, I don't yeah. sign more than five books or even two. And it's just like, that, yeah. that seems like that's overdoing it. Uh, you know, in addition to not being considerate of the other fans. But I was going to say, though, like, that's a big thing for me, too. For example, like when I went to get Mike Allred's autograph on my Madman Gargantua, this like giant collected edition book. All I did was, oh, I don't have to bring the whole book. I'll just take the sleeve off. You know, it's got a dust jacket and I'll put that in a careful thing. And then and when I gave it to him, he's like, oh, that was smart. <laughs> you didn't have to <laughs> lug around the book all the time. I was like, I know, right? And same thing, like when I go to conventions, I love to get my VHS boxes signed if I'm meeting somebody. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I have my VHS tape, but I don't need to bring the whole tape. It's so all like flatten it out. I put it on in a bag and board and I have my pen ready. And I kind of, you know, it's so like I, I have it all like ready to go. And I know it's going to be secure and safe for the trip. Yeah, you definitely. Definitely, you got to play on that way. Have a, have a solid backpack and have a place to put everything where it's not going to get crunched. Yeah, I've gotten posters signed and that one is hard because I don't like poster tubes. These are mo- usually movie posters though. So, and 
yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. Transporting is, is a thing you need to think about, though. It's something to plan. Like, I, I always bring a backpack. You don't want to be carrying. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. You wear out your arms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our final bit of business here in this issue features a last man standing battle between Wonder Woman and Rogue from X-Men as drawn by Jim Ballant. Of course, right? You got to get Jim Ballant in there. And though Diana put up a good fight, according to Wizard, at least at the beginning, they think that Rogue would ultimately come out on top because she could absorb Wonder Woman's powers to defeat the Amazon princess. Mike, what do you think of that outcome? What do you think of that decision on Wizard's part? I agree 100%. Just grab her and pull out all her energy. Yeah. The question I have, though, Wonder Woman is clay brought to life by the gods. Does Rogue really have access to that? Like, can she really sap anything more than maybe her life energy or something? You know, like that. that's where I, I had a little bit of a question about it. No, I, I, I think she could do it, Adam. I think that... <laughs> We'll never know. Yeah, we'll throw it to the geeks. They will tell us on social media who should really be winning this battle. But, you know, both of those gals ended up duking it out on the silver screen. You know, we had a Wonder Woman movie. We've had X-Men movies in theaters. I think Wonder Woman ultimately won, at least with her first film. You know what? You should have posed that question to me. Could the cinematic Wonder Woman (laughs) defeat the cinematic Rogue? Yes, this is... Rogue has always been pretty lame. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. But uh, speaking of cinematic experiences, we are going to check out Heroes in Motion. So our first story here, Having a Blast, reports that Joe Matarera and Jeff Loeb have teamed up to create a new animated adventure series for Nickelodeon called Blast, which is planned to be a full-length animated feature film to hit theaters in the year 2000. Now, the project and contracts were still in development at this time, but as Joe Matt explains, quote, part of the deal is that they've got to stay true to my art style, very fluid with a manga feel, but still very much an American cartoon. So you might be asking, what's it about? Well, the elevator pitch is Pinocchio meets the Terminator. But to expand on that premise, quote, Professor Grant creates a super agent android for the CIA based on the image of his deceased son. Okay, just stopping there. When I first saw that, I was like, Astro Boy? You guys just ripped off Astro Boy? But they get into it a little bit more. But since Blast is a learning computer who needs worldly experience, the government puts him in the suburbs with his father and a female agent who doesn't want to be a babysitter. But there is plenty of action, as Loeb explains, quote, he loves to get pulled out of school to go fight the bad guys. He's like T-1000 and can shift his form to have rockets come out of his chest. Are you excited by all this? Geek said, don't be. Because like so many things reported in Wizard, it was never produced. Yeah, And like so many things that Joe Mad has promised, never produced. Well, maybe 20 years later, he gets to it. But we have an actual animation professional with us who has had his original projects like Gnome Alone find release on platforms such as Netflix. So we have to ask you, Mike, why do so many, especially genre-related film and TV projects, they start out with a bunch of enthusiasm, there's promotion, and then they just never come out? I would love to know myself. This is something, first, Adam, I have been the unfortunate 
you know, creator who doesn't even get to like have their project promoted. Like Netflix didn't promote Gnome Alone. That was found by kids. Like there was no promotion. So I've always wondered this. I wish I had an answer because like, you know, I know the director I work with, he's had a project that he was attached to get announced and then it went nowhere. And so it does happen. And I don't know if it's to, to get more financing, but this project was with Nickelodeon. So I don't know, like, why the hype machine had to start early. Sometimes they announce it to the trade so that they can acquire more investors interested in it. Hey, look, we're, we're working on this. You know, there's tons of comics that get announced that are like, oh, the movie is scheduled for release in two years from now. Blah, blah, blah. Picked up this image comic or whatever. But for something like this, it's really bizarre. It was clearly in development, but then Nickelodeon was like, this sucks. We're not doing it. Do you get word like ever? Like, do you ever get like, ah, it was financial. They didn't want to spend the money on it ultimately. Or like, what Yeah, is like none of my stuff has been attached on the ground level. Like I'm at the writing stage, so it doesn't even really get into production sometimes. So this though, what could have happened was a changeover at Nickelodeon. Like I know the person, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not going to say on record, but I think what I heard with No Malone, for instance, it was picked up by a woman at Netflix. And then that woman was let go at Netflix or left Netflix. So we had even written a Gnome Alone 2 that never got off the ground. But imagine if we had announced Gnome Alone 2. So it, there's a weird things. I don't, it's it's all political, I'm sure. <laughs> Ultimately, nobody knows except for that yeah. person in the moment that pulled the plug. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the next one is Wipeout. It's a story explaining that due to Marvel's continuing issues with resolving their bankruptcy, all of their film and television projects have been put on hold. This includes the in-development Captain America animated series and the second season of the Silver Surfer animated series. It's revealed that the Silver Surfer was a rating success in its first season and had been renewed for a second, but now was on hold and even if the green light was given could not have any episodes ready for the fall 1998 season. Now I'm curious, Mike, did you watch the Silver Surfer series at all? I love the Silver Surfer series. I ordered the DVD set from the UK. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that series that and x-men are like my two favorite and obviously spider-man but silver surfer was like my comic book as a kid so when i was really young and then i love this series it's crazy to think right like i always just thought it wasn't a success and that's why it didn't come out Same. but obviously they're just in the middle of a financial situation and they just that's going to delay production and then ultimately it's just like well it's it's over it, it, it had its moment we probably can't capture that again bring it back a year of, it, after a dead space you know it's such an underrated series did you watch it no all? i def i definitely didn't at the time i didn't even know it existed until how about you- now have you revisit have you visited i, I, I have watched like two yeah. or three episodes it's too it's out there. Slow for me it's too th- thoughtful like i liked the beta ray bill episode where, like on that planet where everybody was like living in this dream world like oh, in, yeah. in like a vr scenario essentially like that was kind of a cool premise but overall it didn't grab me mainly because of Norn Rad as a character. It's the same reason I don't read his comics. I don't know. I'm not pulled into to- almost omnipotent power guy, but he's so sad. Everything- he's so sad. He's so sad, <laughs> but he never goes for what he wants. Yeah, I know. It's a, it, He's a weird character. I think for me, it's a nostalgic character, maybe. The Captain America is a sad one because that would have been a really cool show, I think. They mentioned in a previous story we covered that like they were retooling it because the idea of setting it in World War II maybe wasn't sitting so well after all. And so, <laughs> yeah, 
What's crazy though is, and I don't know for sure if it was happening immediately after this, but like just shortly after saying, well, Captain America is probably not going to happen. So there's an ad for the next issue of Wizard for Wizard number 85. And it shows the Avengers in an animated style. And I don't know if that was just somebody's drawing style or if they were trying to promote the Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. But I think that gets its own cover later, like a few years okay. later when that actually comes out. But yeah, so anyway, it was just it was just kind of a weird period for the Marvel animated projects because it was like Spider-Man Unlimited. And then it's like, okay, you know, we'll get this Avengers thing done. But our, our deal with Fox is pretty much over. We had the glory days of the 90s and... Moving into the late 90s, not so much. But speaking of just looking to the future of what could be, Wizard presents a chart. They love doing charts at this time called Fast Forward in their coming attraction section, which lays out which comic book pros are now working on projects in Hollywood. Now, some are comic book related, some are not. So, for example, Brian Michael Bendis is adapting his creator own book, aka Goldfish, into a screenplay for Miramax. Garth Ennis is writing a screenplay for a preacher film, which has been optioned by Rachel Talalay, the director of Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and Tank Girl. I don't want to say she's famous, but <laughs> her movies were interesting. Neil Gaiman is adapting the script for the English language version of classic anime film Princess Mononoke. Grant Morrison is writing outlines for two more Lawnmower Man sequels. <laughs> and it says since the producers liked his work on Doom Patrol, which is like, he's done so much since Doom Patrol. That's the what? And James Robinson was writing a draft for a at this time called a Jason versus Freddy script. But that's kind of amazing what James Robinson's take would be because so many people wrote the Freddy versus Jason. If, if anybody's ever watched the Never Sleep Again documentary about the Nightmare on Elm Street series, they interview like so many people. They're like, well, our pitch was this. Well, our pitch was this. Like everybody, they was in development forever. But uh, that's kind of funny. Is there any comic book creator or somebody that you're aware of, Mike, where you're like, oh, I didn't know they were involved in this movie. All of it. All of it. <laughs> the biggest was James Robinson, because I was like really into his JSA work and uh, Starman. And so he's just not that guy. I don't understand. Even Grant Morrison, he seems too good of a writer to be a Lawnmower Man sequel. Like not part <laughs> two even. We're talking three and four, he says in this article. <laughs> it just feels like you get a paycheck. I feel it's the same reason that Frank Miller signed on to write Robocop 2 and Robocop 3, right? It's like, well, there's a little bit of prestige here and I can get paid. I'll take that yeah. Hollywood money. I don't care if it happens, you know? I, I think what is interesting though is that how many comic book writers were going into film at this time. That That's fascinating to me because you, you see sometimes you know kevin smith came from film into comics look at myself trying to go from film to comics so it's neat to see that they also were going i, I wonder if that's still happening today are they still well, I think even more so because people are using their books basically as storyboards to be a film, you know? Like, but do they get to write the screenplay? That's the thing that seems unfair to me a little, right? Not, not as often. I feel like everybody learned their lesson from that Frank Miller, the spirit that we talked about. Just like, don't <laughs> that was it. you cannot Done. give them the whole hog, you know? You yeah. Get a little piece to take care of. So, <laughs> but all right, well, take us into our last bit of business here. This is fun. 
Finally, Wizard features a casting call for a live-action Hitman movie. So we're going to take a look at the cast list, and we're going to give our thoughts on this. Adam, are you familiar with Hitman? Did you read it? I've only been reading it since we started the podcast, and man, I loved it. Same place I got all the Mutant X books. They had, like, all the Hitman books. I only bought a few, because I was just like, this read for a really long time. I was like, I I can't buy all these right now. But I think the characters are fantastic. I think the twists and the, the comedy in the violence is so fun yeah it's definitely i can see why so many people point to it as a highlight of the 90s it really was how about you definitely a blind spot for me it it's i again i don't know how i missed it i'm i'm trying to get them now i just like the artwork and stuff like i i got the first appearance of him which was in the demon yeah that which so that's why but i don't know anything about him i haven't even read that comic yet i've kind of been like trying to build it up to read like i have a few issues here and there so to me when i saw the casting call i was like well he came from the demon where's the demon but i guess <laughs> you would know more tell us more <laughs> well guy. yeah i mean it was only it was only that was just like okay he's gonna be this character appearing in the bloodlines annual tied to the demon comic at the time and technically that's where he gets his powers and they never bring it up again except for like the first issue of hitman they're like okay here's where he got his powers he has them we're not going to talk about bloodlines uh... nobody cares about bloodlines there's no tie to the aliens they never come back at least for the stuff that i've read but basically like he has x-ray eyes which sometimes he uses that's why he wears the glasses because his eyes went all black and weird and like he can sort of read minds a little bit like he could pick up on people's thoughts so he could do that but he was already just like a real good hitman right so he he was a good shot at everything so ultimately it's like they could have written the book without him having any superpowers and it would have been the same i feel like he uses them sometimes but not that often to where it matters but i think it's all about the attitude and that's why their pick for who they wanted to play tommy monahan the previously mentioned sam jones flash Gordon and as we've learned the spirit in that tv movie in the 80s not at all sam jones was at retrocon this year i was there i saw him walking around super nice guy but super average american guy you know he's just like hey how you doing (laughs) yeah that's good that's nice you know he's just like he's not got a lot of attitude and tommy might have had his all attitude and i looked at this at the time and i was like you know he's he's got this irish edge to him and everything i'm like let liam neeson be the hitman look what he's done in all the years since you know with the taken movies liam neeson he would have been awesome that makes sense that's a that's actually a really good choice yeah i think it's funny here uh for one of his buddies he he basically he has a lot of bar buddies other people that he's connected to through his hitman business but there's this guy pat james noon and his buddy pat so they want daniel day lewis well, I think they're just like, yeah, I mean, he's done Irish. Let, let him be an Irish guy. Okay. <laughs> from my left foot. Another guy, Kurgan, but not the Kurgan from Highlander, who is a WWF brain dead psycho, they call him. That, that was his in-ring name was Kurgan. I'm like, I don't remember this guy at all. But they, they wanted him to play this guy, Hacken. Dennis Franz as Sean Noonan. So he, again, that's like the bar where they hang out. So I don't, I don't see Dennis Franz as a barkeep, though, do you? Not at all. That doesn't, 
track for me. You know who I would actually see would work is Stacy Keach. You know Stacy Keach? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be perfect. Just a gruff talking guy and he'd uh, yeah, make some jokes and just kind of give everybody some attitude. They say, you want somebody killed deader than a Kennedy? Hire the mysterious assassin Ringo. There's nothing mysterious about Jackie Chan. I'm <laughs> sorry know. to interrupt, but he is not mysterious. <laughs> that is true all his fights are very public and yeah. very oh, oh, oh he's got yeah. so many expressions yeah so i mean if you want to go more mysterious honestly in the picture he looks more like jason scott lee from dragon the bruce lee story so he could have probably done it but maybe an up-and-comer in the world of martial arts action films so if you weren't a jet lee or somebody like that for Nat. Now, Nat is the character that stands out the most to me in these books. He's just like his real good buddy. They have a lot of adventures together. They chose Ice-T to play Nat. But I was like, when I read the book, I'm like, no, Ice Cube. Ice Cube is 100% Nat the Hat, not Ice-T. <laughs> Like type and attitude, like they they missed the mark. They they got their ices mixed up. <laughs> yeah, I have to know uh, yeah. the George Went one is what I'm very curious about. Adam, tell tell me does it, does George Went make a good six pack? Because based on the pictures, I'm not I'm not seeing it. George Went's such a I mean, so happy jolly guy. They're saying because he has years of playing an experienced obese drunkard is why they wanted to play the obese drunkard super schlub six pack. And that was something that Hitman was famous for is that they would just work in all these ridiculous super characters like there's Night Fist. He punches you. With his fist! Like, he just had extended fist gloves, so they were metal, he could punch people. So I don't think George, I would honestly think like Bobcat Goldthwait feels like he would- Oh, that's perfect. Yes, yeah. yes. For Men's Room Louie, they want a, he's just a gangster, uh, but they want Abe Vigoda. And I'm like, you look at the picture, like, yeah, he's 100%. Abe put Abe Vigoda in there. Uh, there's a detective character who I actually don't remember that much. I can't, I know that Hitman hooks up with this girl in like the early issues, but I don't think she was this detective, but they want Robin Givens. It's like, Robin Givens is cool. She was great. I liked her on Head of the Class. But finally, for Mo Doubles, this is the one you really got to look out for when this character comes into the story when you start reading, Mike. Uh, it's a, a, a Siamese twin, brother, gangsters. One of them is dead and a rotting corpse on that side of the body. <laughs> but they want uh, Robert Loggia. Uh, Robert Loggia's been in a lot of stuff but he again he's got like you know the the streetwise kind of you know gangster guy sound to him so that choice is great you've seen innocent blood oh no which one who's in that one with him it's like a vampire uh movie with oh. like mafia a mafia vampire movie directed by john landis that sounds cool no i've never even heard of that yeah check that out because this this makes sense if you watch that movie you'd be like oh yeah 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 yeah, so I'm very curious to see what everybody else thinks about these uh, these casting choices, as always. The last thing I just want to bring up really quick, because what would a Hero's Emotion segment be without an update on the Gen 13 animated movie? Wizard promises a screening of the movie for the public at Wizard World Chicago 98 in advance of the movie's direct-to-video release, which of course never happens. But as previously mentioned on the podcast, I now own the VHS copy that was sent to the Wizard offices. I got it from a former wizard staffer who ended up with it, he says by accident. But it might be the video they use to play it for the fans at the convention. I have no confirmation of that, uh, but perhaps only Jim Lee could say for sure. But speaking of Mr. Wildstorm, it's time to rev up Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. 
And Todd McFarlane news this issue. We get confirmation that Todd did indeed buy a stake in the Edmonton Oilers NHL franchise and that he already has a Spawn-themed Zamboni that's used for the games of the minor league team he sponsors. Also, it's revealed that Spawn will be appearing alongside the Savage Dragon, Shadowhawk, and the Max in a crossover with Sonic the Hedgehog as part of the Archie comic series. The biggest honor bestowed upon Todd McFarlane was his placement as the number one most powerful force in comic books in the previously covered Power Players article, and here's how Wizard justified giving Todd the crown. They're like, this is why he's our guy. We love you, Todd. He's also the guest of honor at Wizard World Chicago this year, so maybe they were just kind of greased the wheels there. He says, why he's number one. When you have real power, all you need is a first name. In basketball, it's Michael. In the world of leggy supermodels, there's Cindy. Action films, Arnold. And in comics, one man is instantly recognizable by his first name alone, Todd. Todd McFarlane is more than an insanely popular creator. He's more than a shrewd businessman. He's a force. And all by himself, he's changed the way comics do business. McFarlane debuted Spawn in 1992 as a monthly on high-quality paper with top-notch art and coloring for $1.95. Other publishers now follow McFarlane's lead. Quote, Everybody now does things Todd's way, says Richard Starkings. Spawn just looks so much better than anything else on the racks. Everything had to keep up. Six years later? Spawn is still top shelf, and where other publishers have gone through a series of price increases, Spawn still comes in at $1.95. I didn't know that. That's kind of interesting. Well, still to this day, it's $2.99. Wow. Way to go, keeps it low, yeah. Building on the popularity of the Spawn comic, McFarlane built his creator-owned character into a major industry. McFarlane has media spinoffs other creators and publishers only dream of. While others jump for joy when they sign a $2,000 development deal that might never come to pass, McFarlane sits back for the Spawn movie, a sequel in the works with him possibly directing, okay, no, and an ongoing HBO animated series. When other publishers lick their chops at the prospect of an action figure, Todd can look at his 10 different series of Spawn toys from his own company. McFarlane the most amazing part, McFarlane has done it all himself. Even a competitor like Marvel Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris has to stop and give McFarlane his due. Quote, Todd created an empire based on one character, and he's been the one guy behind it creatively the entire way, says Harris. It's his vision and his vision alone, and it's worked. You gotta recognize that. You gotta respect that. So McFarlane is not afraid to tell anyone that he's the man. When you watch the HBO series, it's not just entitled Spawn, it's Todd McFarlane's Spawn. Uh, speaking of which, I recently picked up the Spawn Steelbook, the collected edition of the entire series. It's really cool. I was very excited to find that at Goodwill for next to nothing. So I love that series. It kind of falls apart at the last season, but that's solid HBO right there. Yeah, I mean, they, they took advantage of that. Um, yeah. This is what I was excited about for McFarlane. Now that Spawn is up and running hard, McFarlane is turning his attention elsewhere. He got the Kiss comic and toy license based on the flamboyant rock band and is selling Kiss the Psycho Circus through Suncoast Motion Picture Company and Musicland Sam Goody stores in massive numbers. Kiss frontman Gene Simmons wouldn't go with anyone but McFarlane. Quote, I have the utmost respect for Todd as a creator and I admire that he's done as a businessman. Simmons says, I know Kiss is in good hands with him. I want to do more work with him. 
and Simmons is. McFarlane is designing new logos and costumes for the band's next tour. Not bad for a kid from the boondocks of Western Canada, an image McFarlane still wears proudly with his thick accent and constant chatter about hockey. But those who know McFarlane also know that he was valedictorian of his high school class and graduated college at the tender age of 20. That McFarlane is, aw shucks, Demeter was just might be a cover, that he wants people to think he's just a country boy so that they might underestimate him. In reality, he just might be the smartest man in comics. It's hard to argue with any of that because it continues to this day. It does. I know it was hard. He almost made my list for one of the, when we were talking about it earlier, it is pretty amazing. You know, did you know he just announced, I think it was like five or 10 more Spawn comics spinoffs. Whoa. Recently. And then Jason Bloom yesterday, I think it was yesterday, (laughs) came out with more news about speaking of movie news that keeps coming up. That never happens. Another Spawn movie. He literally was talking about it yesterday. Wow. He's so tenacious. He's just like, yep. everything I want, I will get eventually. It will happen. And, but then yeah. he sticks to his guns. Like he said, I'm going to only do Spawn. Spawn is my guy. I'm not getting crazy. He did. He had Boof in the, in the Bruise crew that was mentioned earlier. And then yeah. that was kind of it, you know? And Angela was taken away from him. Maybe he could have done more with her. But yeah, but either way, like it's amazing. And you, you just can't believe it. Like that, that's, that's the unbelievable part that he's been so successful every step of the way. Yeah. Do you have to ask though, you know, the, the Canadian hockey side of things, where do you fall, Mike? I'm not a sports guy, Adam. I'm so sorry. I only have so much room up here for things and it's got to stick to the geeky things. Comics, movies. (laughs) Why don't you give us our Jim Lee news as well? All right. In Jim Lee news, his presence as a guest at Wizard World Chicago 98 is confirmed, which was good news for fans. Meanwhile, the Wildcats Aliens crossover is confirmed to be taking place in conjunction with the final issue of Stormwatch, which is being canceled. Writer Warren Ellis confirms that many of the Stormwatch crew will be killed in the skirmish with the xenomorphs but surviving members are rumored to be appearing in a new series written by ellis called the authority also this issue features a character profile of max faraday the protagonist of divine right which is written and drawn by jim lee at this time yeah so jim lee also just never stopped but i always feel like todd was always one step ahead and todd is always in charge of his own destiny and you had lee always connecting himself with the company right and also ultimately yeah. DC and where he's at. He's at the top of DC, but is he really creatively maybe, but financially he's not in charge of anything over there. <laughs> yeah. Cause like he tried it with Wildstorm, right? Like Wildstorm was his, but now DC owns it or it did yeah. even back then. I think they acquired it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Stormwatch is like kind of coming back into like everyone's discussion. Like I'm hearing about it more because it was one of, I think authority was announced by James Gunn as characters to appear in Superman even. Yeah, I, I think it's part of his new swath of yeah. Yeah, his plans. So I, it, it's just crazy because it didn't even register for me back then. I don't know. Did it? Was it a big thing for you, Stormwatch? No, not, not at all. Like I, I recently just because they were super cheap in a quarter bin, I Thanks. bought like the first fifteen issues because I wanted to read yeah. it. And I started reading it. I'm like, I got two I, issues I, into Stormwatch and was like, Ugh. yeah, this isn't for me. But apparently, when Ward Ellis got on it, he tweaked things a lot, made it interesting, and then like I always heard about the Authority in Wizard, but. I I, it yeah. never have a hook. It never told me why I should read it. It's just like, everybody's saying this is great. I was like, eh, yeah, I'm good. Same. 
Good. But anyway, uh, as we get to our tally here, uh, despite all this news, Jim Lee mentioned just five times. Todd McFarlane mentioned four times, which brings our running total to Jim Lee 496. Oh, he's going to break 500 next time, geeks. And Todd at 465. So he's gaining, but not there just yet. But hey, you know, we want to talk about Wizard World Chicago 98. Why? Because they were both going to be guests at that event. And maybe there was going to be a showdown there between Jim and Todd. So let's check out Turok's Top 10. The Turox Top 10 topic this time around is the Top 10 Attractions at this year's Wizard World Chicago Comic Con. They were really just pushing as hard as they could. This is their summer issue right before it was going to happen. And so I find it interesting that they decided, okay, well, we're going to make some jokes at our own expense. So let's get into this, Mike, and let's take a read here because I am uh, I'm curious to see just how deep they go into their side of things. So number 10, Wheel of Bankruptcy. What lucky winner will walk away with the new owner of Marvel Entertainment. <laughs> Nine, Joel Schumacher's How to Kill a Franchise Seminar. Free eggs to the first 100 fanboys in line. What is the free eggs uh, reference? So they could throw eggs at him oh. because of Batman and Robin. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, number eight, combustible spokes model off. We'll take spokes models dressed as the Hulk, Batman, and Spawn and sit them under 500 watt bulbs for an hour and see who pops first. Come on, that's gross. That's gross. Uh, comic fan skeet shooting. Paul. Again, I don't I don't understand so, this one. Skeet shooting is, you know, when they launch that uh, disc in the air. Yeah. So I'm assuming they're gonna launch fanboys in the air. I don't get it though. What? <laughs> <laughs> Number six, Micronauts live action role playing. Just kidding. Go home, losers. Oh. So mean. So mean. <laughs> Rob Liefeld probably did some micronauts cosplay at some point. He loves that series so much. Yeah. The guess what the hell Wolverine 125 was about. Question and answer period. Winner takes home Chris Claremont. Oh my God. I'm not familiar with this one, but it sounds like one we must read. Yeah. If it's that confusing. Number four, feeding frenzy fun. Pull an uncanny X-Men number 266 out of your jacket at the quarter bins and yell, wow, the first gambit for only a quarter? Contestant who incites the bloodiest stampede wins. <laughs> I got my, I got my first gambit at a thrift store for two bucks what? three years ago yeah amazing wow uh, so that is almost me just a few dollars more <laughs> all right uh fan who does the most push-ups wins job as vampirella model thong washer for a day watch and giggle as thousands of fanboys hearts explode around push-up six <laughs> Look, we're not the healthiest people. Is that the point, though? You gotta you gotta drag us down, wizard. All right. Number two, mud wrestling with Brother Power the Greek. And no, that's <laughs> not a typo. What? Who is Brother? This is the second time they've mentioned Brother Power the Greek. And I don't I, know what is it? It's Brother Power the Geek. It's not the Greek. I don't know what the Greek. They're saying it's not a typo. I think like somebody in their office 
must have like modified the name to be about them or something. Like they must have been like a Greek friend who then said like, I'm brother power of the Greek instead of the geek. Like I don't, cause there was oh. Jimmy the Greek, I think who was like the sports predictions guy. I don't know. That one's still, somebody's got to explain that one. I, I have the first brother power of the geek under my desk right now as we speak. <laughs> it's under in a, a box. It'd take me a while to pull it out. But... Oh, he was just our Lord of the month. Oh, actually no, he, he was part of their April fool's day list of characters. We, wish were a joke we wish <laughs> didn't exist that's what it was oh boy our number one all right garth ennis's children's hour watches the master of disturbing plot devices offers his take on dr zeus classics green eggs and the acne sore full of baby spiders and yurtle the turtle who craved human flesh <laughs> I don't doubt that he would probably take it in that direction. So there you go. So for those of you, we know we've heard from a few folks who were at Wizard World Chicago in 98. We'll have to get a a better report from the rest of you. Tell us your favorite event, favorite moment from from all that. Did you attend the Wizard Fan Awards? Did anybody? Hopefully. But either way, Mike, it was so great to have you back. Thanks for, wow. I mean, I feel like there's all these like little stories that we were pulling out. You're like, wait, what? You found what? where thank you so much for having me back i i you know i love the magazine and i love reliving it with you guys so no, absolutely great. so where can people find you online these days and what what are the projects you want them to check out yeah you can find me on x you know twitter uh at the mike schwartz and on instagram at mike schwartz writes if you're interested in like what stuff I'm writing in my comic and I post a bunch of horror stuff there. Or if you're just interested in comics, you can check me out on Instagram at 50 cent comic collector. And uh, currently my movie, uh, Arl Stein's zombie town. I'm one of the co-writers on it. Uh, you can find it on Hulu. It's a great kids movie. So I don't know when this episode will air, but definitely check it out with your kids. Zombie town, Arl Stein's zombie town. Yeah, and I've seen it, guys. It's a lot of fun. It's not like Disney Channel kids movie. It's got an edge. It's actually like funny. Like it actually, and it's got some great cameos. Dan Aykroyd is in it. Chevy Chase is in it. Like there's a, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff going on, uh, but like just the writing itself, Mike, I will just say, I was just like, this is clever and fun. This is not run in the mill in any way. Well, so, well, thank you. I can't take all the credit. My, my co-writer, the director of the movie also ha- played a huge part and the actors brought a lot to it. I have to say there's this, there's one line that just gets me every time at the end, just uh, from one of the uh, kids in the hall actors. Yeah. So. Oh, I, I forgot to mention that. Yeah. There's a bunch yeah. of kids in the hall alumni in there as well. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. So definitely check out what Mike is up to, but check out what we're up to as well. You know where to find us. We're on X at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, on Blue Sky. Ooh, check out those blue skies at Wizards Comics. Of course, you can find us on our Facebook group. You can find us on YouTube. We had some people recently said, you have a YouTube channel? Yeah, go check it out. We're going to start trying to post some of our interviews and things there, if not the main episodes, because we are still trying to keep it original content for you guys. Of course, so much to gain, though, from the Wizards experience on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics. Five bucks a month. We keep adding perks, okay? So not only do you get a full scan of the issue, you get to get the episodes uncut and a couple weeks early. You're getting the interviews early. Everything we're doing, as soon as it's done, we just drop it to Patreon and they get the inside scoop. We have our Patreon chats where we just, you know, get together and we're talking about what's on our minds in comics. But recently we had a full 
full report on Michael's New York Comic Con. We dropped a little bit of that uh, into our mini episode, but there's a whole lot more uh, that he told us about uh, from that experience. Of course, you could also get our 90s Super Cinema bonus series. You get to vote on a comic-related movie each month that we cover. So we've been doing the spooky stuff lately. We did Blade. We did Army of Darkness. So who's to say what uh, what they're going to vote on next and what we might end up watching? But get on over there. Support the podcast if you like what we're doing. But hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.